Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 16 years of law enforcement analysis experience with 19 years of law enforcement experience overall. She is a subject matter expert for outlaw motorcycle gangs and currently the vice president of the Western Canada chapter of ILEA. She is an analyst by day and a painting artist by night, representing the great city of Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada. Please welcome Jennifer Zhang. Jennifer, how are we doing? Thank you. Thank you. I'm super pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So for the audience, if you were looking for an episode on outlaw motorcycle gangs, this is it because Jenny is the first civilian to be considered a subject matter expert in outlaw motorcycle gangs in Canada. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Did I get qualified. All... Yeah. Okay. We're going to get into that. Of course, we're going to start out with how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession. Yeah. So the way that I entered the profession was sort of by accident. So during university, I had taken criminology and communications as a minor, and I had all the intentions of becoming a lawyer. You know, I'm a child of Chinese Canadian immigrants. Obviously, you know, we were I was always raised to sort of be very motivated to enter into a field that was, you know, sort of considered more intellectual. And and so I had every intention of becoming a lawyer. And after graduating, uh, while I was, you know, writing my LSATs and applying, I started working for the Vancouver Police Department. And so this was sort of my way of discovering, you know, how could I really make use of my education, you know, sort of uh, broaden my horizons, making some contacts within the field. About two years into my employment with the VPD, that there was a decision made by the senior executive team to civilianize analyst positions. So prior to that, the sort of crime analyst spots were occupied by a lot of light duties officers, you know, officers who are sort of uh, waiting to go on leave or were injured. Because at the time, as well in Vancouver, we were starting to adopt the CompStat model, right? We were, our um, mm-hmm. police executives were really looking at New York and Los Angeles and seeing how they were, you know, doing business down there. And so the introduction of that sort of really compelled the reason for civilianizing the analyst spots so that we could bring in professionals who really were sort of trained and, and had the aptitude and the acumen to to deliver the uh, analytical sort of uh, tradecraft. Um, So I ended up uh, foregoing my law school plans and I applied and I got in as part of the first wave of civilian analysts at VPD. It was a very new field back then. I mean, I think, you know, I was part of like this first generation of crime analysts and there was a lot to learn because we didn't really have a lot of access to analytical training programs. But I will say that, you know, I was able, I was lucky enough to, to have mentors who were, you know, senior police officers. I did everything I could to learn and really read, you know, look to our American counterparts who obviously had the programs fairly more advanced and carved out than we did at, in Vancouver at the time. But it was quite an ex, you know, extended experience. And so that sort of led me down the path of having this uh, analytical career that I never expected to have. And again, you know, we, because we were part of the first wave. There was nothing in my past that would have suggested that this would be the path I would go down. 
So yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun for the last 16 years. Yeah. So as you look back now, I mean, what were some of the challenges you were dealing with as you went in to the job for the first couple of months? Maybe some things that either are, you can't believe you thought we were that big a deal and really weren't, or just how do you see it now when you look back at starting into the profession? I think it was sort of, you know, blind leading the blind, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, every every audience member who is in the field can can relate. I think for me, one of the biggest challenges of being the first generation of anything is, you know, the ability to be taken seriously. I think there were a lot of police officers um, within the department who weren't used to having civilian analysts as part of their units or divisions. And so I, I felt that, you know, at the time I was a lot younger and, you know, being taken, taken seriously, being respected, having our voices heard. I think that was certainly the biggest challenge for me. Definitely a bigger challenge than the actual technical skill set that would be required to do our job. Like the, the crime analyst role at the time was so new that we really relied on actually understanding the landscape of criminal activity, right? So I sort of looked at it as I was a junior recruit. I was a junior police recruit and I wanted to learn all of the things I needed to learn, all the crime trends, all of the different hotspots and the, the different you know, uh, crime types and criminals that were within my area of jurisdiction. So I did a lot of ride-alongs, you know, with uh, the teams. I went to every briefing as much as I could. Um, I really learned and then applying that analytical skill set to that knowledge base. So circling back to your question is that I think when I look back now, the generation of analysts, you know, right, who are working now are really lucky because the, the sort of the path has already been paved. They have a lot more access to training now. There's, the lo there's a lot of programs within academic institutions that are offering crime and intelligence analysis. And we didn't really have the luxury of that back in the day. So things have definitely changed. But, you know, I think it really built a lot of grit and a lot of things that have been very conducive to my longevity in this field. So did the department end up implementing a CompStat program? Yes. How, how does it compare and contrast with what you've known about the New York model? Oh, I think it was a, a mirror image. They, they saw how effective it was in the major cities. And so Vancouver, I believe, was the first city to really adopt it. And I know since then, various different jurisdictions across our province, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, so the RCMP, that is our federal police force, alongside some municipal departments, some smaller agencies within some municipalities, they also have implemented the, the CompStat model. So we, you know, we learn from the best. <laughs> nice. So then how do you start getting into being an expert in outlaw motorcycle gangs? What's the introduction there? So I think it's important to sort of acknowledge where I came from, which is I grew up uh, in the inner city of Vancouver. We call it East Vancouver. So I would say that a large proportion of my peers growing up ended up on the other side of the law. And so I think that really gave me a certain sensibility and understanding the motivations for people to get into that criminal lifestyle or to, you know, sort of engage with, with individuals on the other side of the law. And I was always interested in 
two things in law enforcement. You know, I always wanted to work to do something that was really badass. <laughs> and I wanted to also, if I were to stay in the field, and at the time I, I didn't know, because I, I was sort of torn between like, do I go to law school or do I stay in this? And I really wanted to give this the analytical professional shot told myself that I really wanted to go to the peaks of this type of work, not only, you know, working within like learning the, the landscape of street gangs and that type of activity, but also going up to the highest levels of organized crime, you know, the, the groups and the individuals who were involved in transnational criminal activity. And so I said, like, if I, and I've always been the type of person that if I, I'm interested in something, I have an obsession and it's a relentless obsession to do anything I can to achieve that goal. And so I have been very lucky over the course of my career in the last 16 years, where I've really been able to curate the experiences and the training and the, the network I needed in order to really work in every type of gang unit, gang enforcement, intelligence unit that has sort of led me to where I am today. So it's sort of a long-winded answer to your question, but um, I've worked pretty much every type of or every level of gangs and organized crime within the province. I started off working in youth gangs, so these burgeoning emerging groups. And then I worked in an intelligence bureau for the province, looking at high-level organized crime, sort of looking at the, the upper echelons of criminals. I came back to the Vancouver Police Department, to the gang unit, so where we worked, you know, street level and mid-level gangs. And in 2017, I started my position with a combined force of special enforcement unit. And this is the, the province's largest integrated anti-gang unit. And, you know, the mandate of my current agency is to target and investigate organized crime groups and individuals that pose the greatest risk uh, to public safety. So, you know, since joining that this agency, I've been able to specialize in outlaw motorcycle gangs. So I've kind of, you know, I've experienced the whole spectrum <laughs> of gangs and organized crime Good. over the last 16 years. Good. And then I guess in terms of your, you know, just learning, there's certainly the book learning that, you, yeah. you know, you can read in databases and you read in reports. And then there's the more boots on the ground learning, seeing firsthand how some of the day-to-day -day operations of these gangs work. How did that go into producing the expertise that you have today? That's a great question. So I, as I mentioned before, you know, when I was a, a very junior analyst starting my career, I, I was well aware that it would be a disadvantage for me not to understand the mindset of the sworn police members that I worked with, right? Like, uh, so I would, it was a very valuable experience for me to be able to go on ride alongs with them to see what they saw on the street and to really immerse myself in their world and see the, the world through their eyes in order for me to understand what analytical products and deliverables would really address what they needed right like my job as the analyst is to notice things and then also then to weave my observations and my analysis into a story that makes sense for my audience, which are the members on the road, right? The, 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 the guys in the trenches. And so it was really important for me in every unit that I've been in to understand uh, my clientele, if you will, in terms of, you know, what they needed. And so I made every effort to try to get that experience, right? Whether it's going to all of their pre-shift briefings, it's going on, on the road with them, right? Like in my current position now, I'm able to actually accompany them on some of the events that they attend to monitor outlaw. So I'm sort of in the field, able to sort of 
behind the scenes, be in the field, so I can actually get that real-time sort of experience and, and make those observations that are significant and required in order for me to build up my CV for the subject matter expertise, but also yeah, having the experience of interacting with different partners, um, stakeholders, you know, I, I, a lot of what I do now, and I would say arguably in the last 10 years of my career is interfacing with not only police officers, but also senior executive, you know, police executives. I interface with different law enforcement agencies, not only locally, but interprovincially, internationally. And so I, it's sort of a more front facing position I have where I share that expertise and I get it back in return from my colleagues and, and peers as well. And that all feeds into how I curate the experiences and the uh, essentially the experiences I need um, in order to maintain my subject matter expertise. Okay so you know when analysts start out they're usually relying heavily on data. They're, they're producing reports, they're doing what they have access to in the data and that's usually a little bit of their comfort zone. Yeah. Certainly with you, you expanded your comfort zone, went on these ride-alongs, and it became more than just data that you were reporting on, that there was a, a, a level of expertise in that, okay, we don't know all the answers, but I can give educated guesses and filling in gaps and making true analysis out of suggestions and recommendations for how we resolve this problem. How long did, did it take to go from just being reliant on data to being comfortable with making recommendations to executives? Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's always hard because I think the one thing that we don't talk about enough when it you know comes to our field is the importance of emotional intelligence, right? Like, I think that was sort of my competitive advantage when I entered the field was I really quickly understood, yes, we can be excellent at our ability to analyze the data and to really do amazing analytical work, right? Like, but if you can't sell your ideas, if you can't make the recommendations that ultimately will land on your audience and they are willing to act on them and take what you have and really internalize, you know, the advice that you, you're giving them, then really it kind of renders your work obsolete. Um, so, uh, you know, I was very much focused not only on mastering my craft, but also building meaningful relationships, right? So when it comes to senior management, I will say that, in, you know, when I was coming up as an analyst in my early days, a lot of those police members that I worked with now are in positions of power. They are, you know, in positions where of leadership. And so I think we sort of rose together, we rose up together and I got to understand like their trajectory and how that would impact what I needed to do to market my work, but also continue to build that credibility and to really be able to showcase all of the things I've learned and, and be able to create the products that they ultimately use to make their decisions, right? So I think the relationship building is so important and I'll, I'll touch on that later in this interview. But I think with analysts, there's a certain archetype of personality that is attracted to this profession. I mean, I certainly grew up very introverted. You know, I didn't really want to speak up. I was, uh, you know, very insecure in, in my sort of thoughts. I was, you know, a lot of times, you know, we're in our head. And I think mm -hmm. part of it is as an analyst, you really need to know how to sell your work. 
right? You need to know how to package it. You need to know how to ensure that, you know, your clients are really receptive and take to heart what you have to recommend in terms of what they need to know to execute on the street. Yeah. When do you think you got over your shyness? I sort of realized that I had to be very adaptive in my personality in order to succeed. So I think all of the things that I pride myself in being good at now, like the public speaking, the, the relationship building, the ability to collaborate without wanting to just run into the corner. I think all of the, those things were weaknesses and blind spots that I identified over the course of my career. And I worked really hard I worked very intentionally and deliberately to correct those blind spots, right? So I, again, you know, I, I, whenever I, I have a desire to learn something, I get obsessed. And so every area that I am in now or the skills that I am the strongest at are exactly the things I was weakest at at the start of my career. And I knew that, you know, I had to go through the discomfort in order to build the grit and in order for me to have sustained career and longevity in the field. Those were some of the things I had to sort of work to work through. So I really leaned in. Yeah. Overcoming the being in my head. I still struggle with that. I think every analyst uh, listening to the podcast has experienced imposter syndrome at, you know, at least once or twice in their career or continue <laughs> to as I do sometimes. I mean, I've been in the field for almost 20 years now. And, and there are times when I still feel like, do I belong here? So I think working through that sort of mindset and doing what you can to being very honest with herself, with what your week is at, and then just leaning in and, and doing what you can to sort of close those gaps. Yeah. It's, it's interesting as I look back at, at my career, I mean, my, mine was just a, just a level of maturity, right? Mm-hmm. I think when I look back, there was just times that I had such a fear of public speaking that I just wouldn't let myself do it. And there became a point in time where I wanted to do it. And I prepared like what yeah. you're talking about practice, 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 and then you do it. And then the more you that you do the public speaking, it's just the easier it is. And that, that's old fashioned. And that's <laughs> what, what people probably in your parents have told you all your life. But that's really how you become more comfortable speaking in public. Yeah, it's just habit building. It's discipline. And, you know, again, right, there's a type of personality that is attracted to, you know, the analytical profession. And I think, you know, I don't meet a lot of analysts who are super introverted, who are very comfortable in front facing positions. I think that, we, you know, more than likely, they're comfortable being in, behind the scenes in the background. And I kind of realized that, you know, the competitive advantage is to work through all of that psychology. And if you really want to succeed at the high levels, you really have to adapt to, you know, the environment you're in. And, you know, certainly when it comes to dealing and making my recommendations to senior management, that requires a different level of confidence, right? And and so that certainly didn't come easily. It's come with years of experience, but it's also, again, really cultivating that emotional intelligence and, and through interactions with your peers with others in the field and, and sort of watching what works for people and, and taking that and adapting it to your own sort of skill set in order to level up ultimately. And so this brings us to the analyst badge story. And for you, it's winning the individual award of excellence in 2019. This is Ayalia's award. So what did you do to win this award? I felt like that was a <laughs> such a long time ago. It was pre-pandemic and I don't even remember <laughs> what life was like before then. So I was involved in a case where we were 
asked to assist with some local police agencies monitoring a, a, an outlaw motorcycle group or what they believe to be a motorcycle riding club that maybe had affiliations with the outlaw gangs, right? And so actually, I don't know if this would be a good time to interject with sort of the definition of outlaw motorcycle gangs. We sure. can d- dive into that after. Yeah, um, you, can, you can do it now. Go ahead. Okay. So when I say outlaw motorcycle gangs or OMG, what I'm referring to is primarily what we call 1% groups, right? So 1% clubs are ones that are sort of distinguished from your the majority of your, your regular motorcycle enthusiasts who are law-abiding citizens. 1% clubs, outlaw motorcycle clubs, they, they have willingly subscribed to this lifestyle and subculture where they don't abide by the law and they are known to be involved in criminality. So OMG, as defined in Canada, I know the, the definition might vary in across different countries, but it's a group of motorcycle riders who voluntarily make a commitment to band together and they abide by their own organization's rules that are enforced by violence. They engage in activities that bring them and the club into repeated and serious conflicts with society and the law. And so in, in terms of the Canadian courts and, and the, our context is that they've deemed outlaw motorcycle gangs as having the characteristics of a hierarchical structure, having membership and associates. They have colors. So these are the vests and the patches you see behind the rest. They have a clubhouse. You know, they have rules. They do intelligence gathering as well, just like law enforcement. They have their own version of that. And they are engaged in criminal activity. You know, a large part of my job is to distinguish, you know, if there is a new motorcycle club, whether or not they have associations to these 1% clubs. And, you know, in, in our province, in BC, it is very much a Hell's Angels dominant province. And so we were asked to assist on, in this case, because there were a group of firefighters who were involved in this new riding club, right? This motorcycle club. You know, we were asked to provide our expert opinion on whether or not they were considered to be um, a threat, you know, because they were, you know, employees of the city, these firefighters, uh, they were, you know, from a few different sort of jurisdictions. And again, just provide our expertise in, in, in helping their their respective fire departments determine whether or not there was anything to be concerned about, given that they are um, employed by the city. So there was a whole process involved in that. And, and then eventually some of those individuals were asked to be placed on administrative leave and given the choice to either turn in their patches in order to keep their employment or risk losing their jobs because we determined that the club had been present at a few different events where 1% clubs were present. So we were able to sort of paint that picture of, you know, what, what is this club about? What is the, the level of involvement that some of the members of this firefighting motorcycle club were involved in? So I was given the opportunity to testify in a court setting. It was through that where I became qualified as a subject matter expert in OMG for BC. And it's a great accomplishment, obviously, because um, it was the first time that a civilian analyst within this OMG portfolio across Canada had been able to have the opportunity to, to testify in a legal proceeding and then also get qualified as well. So, yeah, I think that was considered my badge story. I, mean, I, have, I have others, but yeah. I know, you know, we've got time constraints for this podcast. Sort of an interesting trajectory in terms of how this case unfolded. But again, it was, uh, you know, under 
underpinning the importance of, of our unit's work in dispelling the myths of outlaw motorcycle gangs and public perception and really just provide the realities and how it, it impacts citizens within our community. So in terms of becoming the subject matter experts, what are the standards or what do you actually have to do in order to be qualified and to be considered a subject matter expert in outlaw motorcycle gangs? I think it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but in, ter- in, in, in my case, I really had to provide a very robust CV. And so a lot of that CV, and, and because of the, the unique nature of the OMG portfolio for OMG investigators and analysts across Canada, it requires different sort of experiences that you have to be able to articulate in your CV that contribute to your base of knowledge, that really allow you to, you know, sort of show that you've done the work in curating all of that subject matter knowledge. And, you know, like, so for I'll give you an example, like, it's really, again, you know, when I talk about being in the field, it's really important to, yeah, have those observations because how do you really know if you're just looking at data, if you're just reading, or if you're looking at police reports, like you don't really have a sense of, you know, whether or not that's sort of the reality of the subject matter you're analyzing, right? So I can't really get into the specifics of why our portfolio is very different, but it goes beyond, it extends beyond just our ability to be an analyst looking at data. The subject matter expertise also relies on observations, on our ability to continue networking and being educated by other experts in our field. So I I attend a lot of conferences. I speak at a lot of conferences or uh, intelligence forums. So a lot of that is also predicated on your ability to maintain and cultivate that network where the trends and some of the things that we see, uh, we're constantly in the know, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think when you, whoever is working in an intelligence capacity uh, in the field of gangs and organized crime know how quickly things change. So you really need to be sort of at the forefront of all of those changes. And the best way to do it is not only, you know, of course, yeah, you can read reports and you can analyze data, but it's also, you know, tapping into your network. And that is very clearly articulated in my CV as well, in terms of maintaining that currency. Back to the case with the firefighters. Are you testifying that you, about establishing this outlaw law motorcycle gang and what they truly represent, the criminal enterprise that they are? Because I'm, I'm just thinking about how mm-hmm. this case would have played out is, okay, they would have to establish that, number one, these firefighters are part of this gang and mm-hmm. that this gang is basically no good. And yes. and so there they they had the right to give the ultimatum that you talked about. And so is is that what you're you were you were establishing the gang as being no good? Yeah, so I was asked so I testified um, alongside two other of my colleagues who are investigators who are also considered subject matter experts in the field. And my role was to try to paint the picture of what OMGs, you know, what their role is and what their impact is in the current landscape of, of, of gang activity and, and organized crime, sort of where they're situated, what they're known for, and then how we're placing the club that is in question. You know, how does that relate to what we know about other 1% clubs in our province, right? So the implications 
on whether or not there could be, based on the activities of this club, this firefighters club, whether or not if they had a relationship with the Hells Angels, would that impact their employment? And what are the implications then of that on public safety, right? My role, again, is just to really help paint the picture and offer an opinion on what I believe to be sort of how this club might be impacted by general activity and trends that I'm aware of that OMGs do in our province. Okay. Because in this particular case, these firefighters did not do any overt act. Obviously, if they did, they would have been fired with cause and you wouldn't have got to this point. Yes, so correct. essentially what they are being given this choice because association to the Hells Angels. And yes. so I guess, how did this case play out? Because it definitely I could see an argument being made that like, hey, we didn't do anything. We are just this group and we didn't break any laws. We didn't do anything. So why am I being forced to disassociate when I didn't do any overt act? Oh, absolutely. And and the majority, I mean, this legal proceeding was really premised on, on them keeping their jobs, right? So mm-hmm. their defense was, yeah, obviously, like we, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. Like, and our role as the experts coming in, offering our opinion is to really just again, provide them with an understanding of what this means. You know, it's up to the judge to make the decision or it's up to the, the employer or, you know, the all of the, the parties involved within this proceeding. So my colleagues, the, the investigators, were there to articulate sort of what OMGs are, like what it means to wear a patch on their back, what it means to, you know, basically the definition of OMG, like uh, what I touched on before. And that was sort of their role in really fleshing out what they are. And again, my role is to really situate that and what the implications are for this club. So really, we weren't really making um, any comments on their involvement in criminality or any of that. We were just simply there to show like, this is what we're seeing. These are some of the observations we've made. And and then I would qualify those observations by offering my sort of analytical assessment of what that should mean for the court. Okay. And then what, what was the outcome of the case? After we testified, the, the the case was still ongoing. We haven't actually had an update for a while in terms of how it played out. But I do, I, I can report <laughs> that that club, you know, that particular chapter of the club in BC since folded, the majority of the membership turned in their patches in order to maintain their employment. And so... Yeah, I think uh, that was a really great disruption on our part. You know, it, you know, it was the attention that we had put on this club. And also, too, like we there was a lot of media coverage on this club because of just the way that things played out. Like we, you know, we all motorcycle gangs for us in BC, it is considered a an enforcement priority. So there was definitely some media interest in the subject. And so it was well publicized. And so actually, we can link to some of those articles in the show notes, but it was a cool case to be a part of. And I'm, I'm I was glad to have had the opportunity to showcase what an analyst can contribute in this circumstance. Okay, good deal. And did you have any advice for our listeners in terms of testifying or bringing a lot of this information to light? It really depends. I think it, you know, it really depends on what kind of 
expert you want to be. So what the one thing I'll say, and I think this was one of the points that was mentioned in the word nomination is that prior to my qualification and, you know, in our province, there were no other civilian analysts who were qualified as experts in any sort of crime groups per se. We have a lot of, I have a lot of colleagues who have been qualified as experts in terms of specific skill sets, like data analysis, like, you know, tro- like trackers, that kind of stuff. So it was a little bit of, of a unique circumstance for me to, to be qualified in something that was considered, let's say more of a food group versus a skill. Mm-hmm. And, and so every crime group is different. You know, every gang is different with OMG. I will say for me in my experience, you know, sort of working up to this achievement is that OMGs are typically very, very structured, right? So it, it requires less effort to really try to articulate what this particular group is about, because we already know they have rules in place. Like I mentioned, you know, what the courts have deemed what an outlaw motorcycle is, they have certain characteristics. And so when you try to sort of become qualified, I would say for OMG, it is, it's, they follow a set of rules where you build your expertise around, okay, what are some of the observations you made in relation to this very structured gang? So I, I don't know if that kind of answers your question, but it is very difficult to be qualified as an expert in a group because in terms of a crime group, because you really have to intimately know the evolution of that group, how they they function, and then be able to try to articulate why they're considered to be a, you know, a criminal organization, right? So it it really depends. But yeah, I think, you know, I, I hope that this creates opportunities for other analysts in the field who are interested in doing this type of work. Again, I, I would say that the level of difficulty in getting qualified as a gang expert for a particular group are a little bit, so it varies in, in the level of difficulty, but I think it's a great experience. And I think we need more of it because there definitely is a lack of that type of expertise in our province when it comes to being a court expert. Good. And congratulations again. That's a quite an honor and good work. Thanks. Hi, I'm Joanne. I'm a crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. A public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. You didn't do the dishes? Well, no, I was busy doing other chores, but my completed chores is up five in the last seven days. Yeah, but you're still down 13 over the last 28 days. Well, I see your shopping purchases is up 20% this month. My spending is still down year to date. In fact, my black shoe purchases are half of what they were this time last year. Well, thank goodness last year wasn't a normal year. Plus, I bought you new underwear, so your clothes purchases is up 40% this month compared to last month. Well, wait, there were no clothes purchases the previous month. Miss Perfect. I didn't know you had the ability to divide by zero. You should be happy. Your temperature-led policing program has worked great in this house. I have not touched your precious thermostat in the last six months. Millions of homes in the U.S. are impacted by people wanting to be comfortable in their homes. Temperature-led policing. Control the temperature. Control the cost.
I'm going to slightly move on because I, I, I do want to have a more general conversation on at-law motorcycle gangs now. And you mentioned the what's been established in the courts on how to identify an at-law motorcycle gang. Do you see groups then recognizing that, hey, this is how law enforcement is identifying us? We're going to let's change our ways and maybe not be so overt. So maybe they're not into colors or showing off publicly their ways of doing business. So they're going more covert. Oh, absolutely. I think that would be the the smart way to do it, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. But, you know, with OMG, with biker gangs, so much of their reputation and their brand is reliant on like the patch, right? And and so that's sort of their calling card. And the thing is, most of the gangs that we deal with in, in BC, and I would say arguably right now looking at the, uh, you know, the national gang landscape is that a gang will typically try to avoid law enforcement detection, you know, sort of anytime there's a lot of bravado, I think it's a telltale sign that they're not necessarily operating at the highest levels <laughs> because mm-hmm. they are very vulnerable to law enforcement disruption efforts, right? But again, the OMG portfolio is very unique because we are dealing with a gang that is well-established, that has a global network. They are very, very prominent to the public. And so as part of my agency and my, my team's efforts, you know, we have a strategy that's predicated on four different pillars. Pillars consist of enforcement, intelligence, performance, measurement, you know, whether or not what we're doing, our efforts are moving the needle generally. And then also we have a a component that deals with education and awareness, not only to educate our law enforcement community in terms of some of the trends and the things that they need to be aware of for officer safety, but also educating the public on the realities of OMGs and really provide that counter narrative to sort of dispel some of the myths that these biker gangs are just bike enthusiasts. Uh, you know, they attend toy drives and charity events. And, you know, I think they're leveraging a very sympathetic public because I think that they've operated in a way where they've been able to distort the public's perspective on the threat of OMGs within the community. And so part of our strategy when it comes to uh, media is to really put out products that provide that counter narrative to really show truly what the threat of OMGs are, the negative impact on our communities, and then also to try to flip that sympathetic or supportive perception of OMGs in the public, because that's simply not true. We, you know, we know from countless investigations, what types of criminal activities they're involved in, you know, the, the, the nature, the geographic reach they have, the, the global footprint they have as a criminal organization. So, you know, we try to develop our strategy in a very fulsome way so that it really addresses not only educating, you know, our police members and our stakeholders, but also the public so that we can sort of enlist in their help to try to combat the impact of these gangs in our community. All right. So how accurate is TV shows like Sons of Anarchy? Well, I definitely think it glamorizes lifestyle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And so again, it's really important for us to continue to sort of dissect the entertainment value of these types of shows and, you know, products. There's a lot of people who don't even understand that buying 
support gear for some of these bikers, right? Like it's some of the, the, the consequences or, or what they're really doing. And, and again, like I said, you know, there is a very seductive nature of this biker lifestyle and subculture that I think the, the media and the entertainment world has been really able to leverage, right? But Mm -hmm. for those of us who are working in law enforcement, we know that the reality is there is a lot more to the story than this entertainment provides. So we work really hard to try to reverse some of that glamorization. Yeah. What are some misnomers, stuff that people think about outlaw motorcycle groups, or maybe what did at one time was true, but is no longer true? It's not what you're seeing there in Vancouver these days. Um, I think specifically in Vancouver or in British Columbia, you know, I think the perception for a very long time is that, you know, biker gangs are just not relevant in our lexicon of gangs, right? Mm -hmm. I I mean, obviously, they are a very well-established organization, but they're not really at the forefront, right? They're, They're not the ones doing the shootings. And we know very well that with any law enforcement agency, we really have to address public safety. And so who are the ones who are, who are the guys or the gangs who are doing the shootings, who are the ones who are a direct threat to the community in terms of violence? So it takes a little bit more work for us to try to unravel like the influence of organized crime, right? And so at the level of, you know, the upper echelons of organized crime, those are not going to be the guys that are on the street level doing the shootings or the homicides. And so I think that is sort of the reason why the general public, they don't seem to think that OMGs are necessarily a threat. I think the perception has uh, for a very long time been that they are a benign group, right? That they just are a bunch of white guys on bikes, right? And (laughs) and we're seeing, and I can tell you from my experience, analyzing the different trends across the landscape in in the current environment, they are adapting to the changing composition of our gang landscape, right? They are recruiting individuals that don't necessarily look like your traditional archetype of what a biker looks like. And, you know, and that's just smart, right? It's, It's sort of like if we were looking at a regular corporate organization like what are some of the the tactics they would use for recruitment and you know are, some of these criminal organizations are no different right they really have to understand the type of talent that they're bringing in in order for them to continue to succeed at the highest levels of the criminal environment so i would say that uh, you know obviously the public isn't privy to the type of intelligence that we get but i will say that just as much as our communities are changing, our criminal groups are also adapting and they are also recalibrating in accordance to some of those changes. Yeah. Is there aspects of outlaw motorcycle gangs that you're seeing in either Vancouver or British Columbia that is just unique to that area? I think one of the things I I will say for our province is that, again, it, it goes back to we don't appear to have a lot of rival OMG presence. So I I know in other uh, jurisdictions, especially with our American counterparts, we hear a lot about biker wars, right? Even in other countries where, you know, you've got uh, feuding groups or clubs that have a long history of conflict and tension. And a lot of that tension is played out um, at the street level. And so in BC, it is very much HA dominant, and that is something that is is unique to our province because there we're not seeing the conflicts play out between 
groups that are opposing because they're trying to attain that territorial domination. It's really DHAs have a stronghold in our province. Yeah. Is that, is that because it's just too cold to ride bikes most of the year up there? No, we have a, <laughs> we, we have what's called a ride season and it typically stands from about April to end of September. So oh. yeah. So our investigators are out there doing what they need to do to monitor these events and maintain public safety. So (laughs) we are on the West Coast, so we do have better weather than our Eastern counterparts. So what I want to do now is I'm actually going to switch subjects on you because I do want to spend a little bit of time in this interview talking about IALEA and more specifically the Western Canada chapter to IALEA. You're the vice president, and I just kind of just go into a little bit about what the Western Canada chapter is doing these days. Absolutely. This is a a topic I'm very passionate about. So ILEA Western Canada chapter, we are the only chapter, the, the only active chapter in Canada right now. We basically, our membership is a cross section of intelligence analysts from federal, provincial, municipal police departments. We also have analysts from uh, partner agencies, such as our Canadian Border Services Agency, our Correctional Services of uh, Canada, and other provincial and federal government agencies as well. So it's a very diverse group. So along with our executive committee, we really are very passionate about democratizing access to analytical training at a low cost. Because I think we all know that law enforcement agencies tend to struggle with budgetary constraints. And the the whole goal of our chapter is to really bring in the best instructors and allow our membership to get access so that they can continually level up their analytical toolbox and to sort of be exposed to the changing technology and really up-level their, their skill set. So I've been with the, with the chapter, with the executive for just so over 10 years. And over the last 10 years, we've been able to covet some really world-renowned experts in different areas. And we really try to address those training needs of our, our membership. So just to talk the top of my head, uh, in recent years, we've hosted courses in telecommunications, data analysis. We've hosted courses on public speaking and communication analytical writing, court testimony. We've offered courses on open source intelligence. We've also brought in a psychologist who specializes in treating law enforcement personnel to talk about mental health and emotional resilience. And we've got an upcoming webinar for threat profiling with an expert who um, has instructed for ILEA, uh, the international sort of chapter. So, you know, we're really always coveting these instructors from all around the world in order for us to give access to our to our membership. Some of the things we're looking at, you know, going into this new year, uh, we're going to be starting a new webinar series that's really going to try to showcase the talent and expertise of our chapter members. We're looking to bring in speakers that, you know, have that unique perspective, sort of similar to what you're trying to do with this podcast, um, <laughs> but at a local level. And again, really try to highlight the talent we have locally. I will also mention that both our current chapter president, Michelle Brander, and our former President Magda Marchak are regular instructors for a crime analysis and uh, crime intelligence analysis program at a local institution. So we are looking to also leverage their relationship to this institution as well, and to develop uh, more strategic partnerships with you know educational institutions as part of our strategy to elevate the professional development of our membership. And I think uh, the last thing I'll mention is that we do also in, uh, offer incentives 
for our membership, uh, you know, to provide sort of a, a measure of financial support to encourage our members to put in applications to speak at the ILEA conference or to have their work published in the ILEA, ILEA journals. You know, whenever uh, one of our members wins an ILEA award, we'll also provide uh, financial sort of support because we really feel that it's important to support each other and the next generation of analysts, right? And I think that a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the more we can continue to support our membership, the more it just makes that analytical footprint bigger in the world. Good. And then in terms of your members, I mean, is it mostly new analysts or do you feel that you have a pretty good mix of both new analysts and seasoned analysts? We have a mixture. And I think that's also really important for mentorship opportunities as well. So yeah, so we've been very lucky. We, we've definitely added a lot of sort of uh, junior members, uh, junior analysts who are entering the field, but we also have a lot of longtime members who have been seasoned analysts in their particular area of expertise for many years. All right. Well, very good. Good, yeah. good work, work on that. And again, we'll put a link in the show notes to the, the chapter webpage there for, for folks to get more information on what's going on with the chapter. And uh, I guess speaking of experienced analysts and seasoned analysts, what is your advice for the experienced analysts? So I spent a bit of time thinking about this very recently because, you know, I'm sort of approaching my 20 years uh, in the field. But I think when I look back over the core, the arc of my career, I, I think I've sort of realized that there was an error in my previous assumption where, you know, I kind of assumed that the mentors you need are older than you. I certainly, you know, thought that, you know, when I was, uh, you know, coming up and I've certainly benefited from the wisdom and insights of those who came before me. I would say like a lot of those mentors at the time were senior police officers because there were so few analysts around me at the time. But I guess I had this very romanticized idea of getting into a room with a powerful person or a role model that would really change my life. And I, you know, I've come to realize that that's actually just not necessarily the truth. I think, you know, what changes your life and your career are really your peers, right? Like, again, the people that you rise up with are your power base. I touched on this earlier, where I really highlighted the importance of having my network of contacts. And I, I'm very passionate about encouraging my colleagues and, you know, especially for the next generation of analysts to really fortify their connections, collaborate with your peers, because ultimately your network and your knowledge is really where you leverage your power from, right? So you learn from each other. I know that, you know, having so many years working in this field, I'm here to connect people. We're all here to share our trade secrets or our best practices or how we can optimize and do things better. And then, you know, we all like, I mean, in my case, I like to also reverse engineer some of the success stories of my peers, right? So what, what I've really realized is that your network is a huge part of your success in the analytical field. And so it's really important to play that long game. You know, we're here to create value for each other. This is not only just, you know, an analytical profession, but I think we need to think of it as a, as an ecosystem. And so I think that's kind of what I realized is that this idea of a, of one mentor or one role model in your life, it, you know, if you're not, if you're not experiencing that, you're not really necessarily at a disadvantage because you have a whole world of peers that you can tap into if you've cultivated the right network. 
And I actually really think that this is the reason why your podcast is really resonated with the community because it's doing just that, right? It's connecting people and it's really exposing and showcasing the work of our peers. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, and, and speaking of networking, will you tell the story of what you used to do in high school with yearbooks? Yes. So again, I, I get a lot of questions from new analysts who are like, hey, like, how did you realize that you wanted to get into this field? And I always say like, this was an accident. But I will, when I think about, okay, like what were some of the, the earlier experiences or some of the formative sort of things that I, in my, in my formative years, were the things that I did that sort of tracked very closely to what I was, to what I'm doing now. So growing up, my family didn't have a lot of money. Everyone will remember in high school, at least in, in Canada, we have things called yearbooks, right? And so because I, we didn't really necessarily have money to, to purchase my own yearbooks. I used to borrow the yearbooks of my cousins you know, so every summer I would just kind of bug them and, and be like, hey, I want to take a look at your yearbook. And I would just literally spend a week going through these books. And I, then I would just sort of in my head figure out like who is part of which friend group based on, you know, studying all the little captions and, and looking at different people and how they, you know, how the, the yearbook photos would turn out and, you know, some of the social activities and the clubs, I would be able to figure out by the end of the week, who was part of what network. And, you know, it was kind of a fun exercise at the time. Cause I, I was, I, I was a very curious kid. I always thought like, what could my life be like? And I was always very interested in human dynamics. I was very interested in other people's lives and so, yeah, my parent, my, uh, my cousins would always be sort of amazed that I would be right on the mark in terms of my assessment <laughs> at the time. And so I, I think that curiosity of humans and of relationships at the time became very conducive to what I do today as an intelligence analyst. It's just a different demographic of people that I'm looking at. So, yeah, so I think that was a, it was a fun little memory of, you know, what I used to do that has really contributed to the amount of fun I have doing this job. Today. Yeah, I think I'm going to do that the next time I get one of the kids yearbooks. <laughs> I'm certainly going to look at yearbooks differently from now on. That's a, that's a fascinating task that you had. Yeah. And actually, I will say also too, like I, um, I had to change schools when I was younger as well. So what I would do is I would borrow the textbook or the yearbook from the school that I was going into, study it. So again, it's no different from when we're trying to do background profiles, right? Yep, on, get that intel. You know, our, yeah, on, on the individuals that we're trying to analyze. And, and so I would get the intel and I would figure out like, who do I, who would I want to interact with when I arrive at the school? Like which, who are, you know, which groups do I know to stay away from? Or, you know, so it was a fun ex exercise. But again, like I said, like it was that curiosity that really, I guess, eventually led me down this path. So. All right. The last segment to the show that I want to talk about is personal interest. For you, you're a painting artist. And yes. so I want to go over that. And this is going to be really bad radio here because I, I have your website up and I'm going to be looking at the website. And so certainly we'll put your link in the show notes. And I highly, highly suggest to anybody listening that you check out her work because it's fantastic. But I guess when did you start painting? Did you were you always artistic growing up? Um, so I've never had any formal art training, but mm -hmm. I was very much gravitate. I gravitated very much to the arts, and whether it was um, you know visual arts, it, you know drama classes. I was you know involved in playing instruments growing up, so I did grow up as a very sort of art 
autistic child. But, you know, being the child of immigrants, um, again, right, like the focus on academics, I never thought that being an artist could be something that I could pursue as a career. And how I really rediscovered my passion for painting was really just born out of needing an outlet to express the creativity I had. I mean, you know, being in intelligence analysis and being this world of crime fighting, there's not really necessarily a lot of room for that overt creativity. And I think it's so important, you know, for everyone to have something that balances their brain, you know, painting versus crime fighting, those two activities exercise different parts of my brain. And so that's been really important. And it's, it's really helped me maintain that balance in my life. And yeah, so my art sort of my artistic pursuits have really taken off for the last few years. And really it all started because I, I wanted to find a new skill or, you know, be sort of, you know, have a, have an activity where I could really be present and express something that I'm not typically usually able to express uh, in a work context. Right. So yeah, so it's, it's very calming for me. It's sort of my version of meditation. (laughs) I'm very high energy. So meditation doesn't work for me, but painting does. So (laughs) So, and I'm certainly not a painting expert by any sort of imagination, but I, in looking at these pictures, there's certain themes that stick out to me, whether it's the, the paint strokes or the use of black, some of the facial features, uh, side profiles. How long did it take you to establish a style? I I would definitely say that my aesthetic has changed over the years. And, uh, you know, the reason why I named my website or my company now, like I started my own little creative company, it's it's real gen art Mm -hmm. because my art is sort of a reflection of what's in what's inside, right? Like it's it's a way for me to speak my truth because Mm -hmm. obviously working in, you know, as an analyst in law enforcement, it's, there's not, you know, and I don't know if we've, we've spoken off air about this, but like the importance of mental health health, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. not really necessarily a lot of room for you to, to express your vulnerability or, you know, necessarily some of the struggles we have with mental health. Thank God that's sort of in our current lexicon. And and there's such a focus on that now, but I I find with painting, uh, when I first started painting about, you know, uh, I would say like a more at the beginning of when I started to really paint again, it was really to calm my monkey brain. And, you know, I was going through a lot in terms of my personal life. And so you would see that the subject matter of my art is darker. It is a little bit more sort of provocative subject matter. And and the color scheme is is a lot more sort of dark and gothic. I I have a lot of skulls and guns. And I was very angry back then, I would say. And that's the truth, right? It, It was a reflection of what was going on inside my head and my emotions. But as sort of my creative trajectory sort of unfolded, I've really learned to adapt my style. You know, I, I'm very open about, you know, seeing a therapist. And I think with any artist, they always struggle with like, is it necessary to be, you know, to be a tortured artist? Can you create great art if you're not suffering? And I certainly had a lot of those conversations with myself in my head. And I realized, again, like my focus on healing my mental health, you know, some of the stress that I get from 
the job that I do, like that has really helped me elevate my art, you know, and take it from a very dark place to now there is a lot more color. There's a, a more whimsical element to it. Right. And again, that's just a reflection of sort of what I'm going, uh, you know, what's going on in my life and, and my soul, I guess, but I think it's really important. And I, I'm very happy to have this outlet to be, to, to be able to express myself because it's not really all that easy within our, you know, within the law enforcement field to be able to have some of these more vulnerable conversations. And so I, I can speak through my art and allow that to sort of resonate with my audience. Hmm, interesting. So, so looking back then, which do you find more difficult breaking in to as an analyst at a police department or breaking in as a part-time artist in, in this painting realm? I would say that there's different challenges, but again, you know, I saw the the parallels between people who are attracted to the analytical field and then people who are artists. We're sort of people that are in our heads a lot, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're very sort of thoughtful and, you know, a lot of us are deep thinkers and sensitive. And, you know, in this case, I, I think foundationally, I'm very good with I can understand linear thought and, and, you know, like evidence-based sort of, you know, metrics and that kind of stuff. Right. But then there's another side of my brain that I get to exercise as an artist where nothing really makes sense. Right. Like, you know, when it comes to, to analysis, like one plus one equals two. And in the art world, it's like two plus two equals banana. Right. So it was hard for me to sort of navigate both worlds in with, diff, you know, through those different sort of lenses. But I felt that it was also really important for me to really build up my analytical career on its own and then also craft sort of my trajectory as an artist completely separately. So the two worlds don't necessarily speak to each other. Nobody well, now a lot of a lot more of my my colleagues are aware of some of my creative pursuits, but up until very recently, I don't think a lot of them, unless I, you know, I'm personally sort of uh, acquainted with them, knew that I was kind of pursuing this artistic journey. And then, you know, nobody in the art world knows who I am and know, knows what I do because of the covert nature of our work. So I try to keep those two things separate. I I had to work really hard to have those two platforms stand on their own. But I, I love having that dual narrative of being both a crime fighter and an artist because it's very unique and I continually get to learn and satisfy my curiosity um, to do new things. And so it's definitely challenges in both, but I, I love it. I think it keeps me sharp and on my toes. Excellent. Very good. All right. Well, our last segment to the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Jenny, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Uh, I would definitely say that one of the biggest things I've learned being in this field is to dig the well before you're thirsty. And what I mean by this is recognize that if you're in an intelligence community, if you're an analyst, in my case, working in gangs and organized crime, you're trading on the currency of knowledge and credibility, right? So you have to have the foresight to cultivate a network of contacts before you really actually need them. I think most people don't build those relationships until they need them. And at that point, you're really operating at a disadvantage. So I would say, again, going back to this idea of like, think of the intelligence community, think of the analyst world as an ecosystem. How can you create value? How can you help others? And really try to develop the foresight to create those, create those relationships before you really need them. 
so that you're not playing at a disadvantage. So that's my words to uh, the world. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you, giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. But I do appreciate you being on the show, Jenny. Thank you so much and you be safe. Thank you. You too. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.